The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, and welcome to Barron's Live. I'm Jillian Berman, a Market Watch reporter, and today we're talking about financial aid and, and what's new in college financial aid this year. We have Mark Kantrowicz joining us. He's an expert in financial aid and author of How to Appeal for More College Financial Aid. Uh, welcome, Mark. Thank you. So in a few short weeks, we're going to see the new iteration of the FAFSA or the Free Application for Federal Student Aid form. Um, and as part of this conversation, you know, over the next uh, 10, over the next half hour, we're going to talk about what those changes mean. Um, but let's back up first. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, sort of how colleges actually use the FAFSA um, in determining age el- aid eligibility? Excuse me. Well, the FAFSA is used to apply for money to pay for college from the federal government, state government, and most colleges and universities. It calculates a student's ability to pay for college based on family income and assets and demographic factors like family size. This yields a figure that used to be called the Expected Family Contribution, or ESC, and will now be known as the Student Aid Index, or SAI, and it subtracts that from the total cost of attendance the tuition, fees, room and board, book supplies and equipment, transportation, and miscellaneous expenses, and that yields the financial need. Need Need-based financial aid is based on financial need. Got it. Okay. And can you, you mentioned, you know, something that, that I was hoping to get into, um, which is, you know, the change from the EFC to the um, student aid index. Can you just talk real quick about, you know, sort of what that change means and how um, it will actually impact students and families and their eligibility for financial aid? Well, in a way, the student aid index or SAI is just a new name for the EFC. The name change is intended to prevent confusion over the meaning of expected family contribution. Previously, some families thought that the EFC was all they had to pay, but most families have to pay more than the EFC. Many colleges don't meet full demonstrated financial need, instead leaving a gap of unmet need. And of the colleges that meet full need, many meet need with loans, which have to be repaid, usually with interest. There are some colleges, about six dozen, that replace loans with grants, but these colleges often redefine financial need. They may have a minimum student contribution or a summer work expectation that in practice sets a minimum EFC or SAI that is greater than zero, even for low-income students. And in reality, the EFC was just a rationing system and the new name by having index as part of the name is an admission of that. Right, got it. So admitting that um, that that an EF that that this number is actually probably less than what a student slash family will actually be expected to contribute. Yes. Yeah, got it. Okay. Um, all right. So let's let's talk a little bit about you know this new form. It's rolling out. Um, I believe by December thirty first of this year. Right. It's required to be rolled out by yes. then. Um, and so, can you talk a little bit about like 
what the changes to the form will look like. So for people who have, you know, filled out the form uh, for previous kids, um, you know, how will it be different this year? Well, the FAFSA Simplification Act eliminated about two thirds of the questions on the form. So it will be much, much simpler than in the past. Uh, it'll take uh, in 15, 20 minutes to complete instead of an hour for the first time. And um, part of the way they did this is by having some of the data transferred from the IRS. So rather than have you answer questions about your income, uh, it is going to be transferred from the IRS. Previously, the form had the IRS data retrieval tool, which was optional. You could choose to have your data transferred from the IRS. Uh, with this new FAFSA, it's going to be transferred through the IRS uh, direct data exchange, and that will be mandatory. If you complete the FAFSA, you are giving permission to have your tax information transferred into the form. And as part of simplification, they also did better alignment of the FAFSA with federal income tax returns so that more of the questions could be answered by using IRS data. Right. So ultimately, fewer fewer things for people to, to that that people will have to fill out. Right. Yes. Yeah. OK. Got it. Um, OK. So let's talk a little bit about how the changes to the form um, and, you know, and sort of the changes to to the FAFSA will actually impact students and families aid eligibility aid eligibility. So first of all, let's talk a little bit about who might be receiving less aid than they would have in the past due to these changes. Well, the sibling loophole has been eliminated and that divided the parent contribution by the number of children in college. So middle and high income families who have multiple children in college will guess get less financial aid. Also, students from high tax states may get less aid because the state and local tax allowance, which was never very accurate, has been eliminated. So New York, for example, there will be less uh, financial aid for students from those state, that state. They also eliminated the small business exclusion and the family farm exclusion. So those uh, will be reported as assets on the FAFSA. Uh, Part of businesses are still sheltered on the form, uh, but it's still, it will count for something uh, as opposed to ignoring it entirely. Got it. So, right. So to clarify, before um, small businesses and family farms were were excluded um, from, from a family's assets when considering how much aid they might be eligible for, but now that's changed. Correct. Yeah. And can you can you dig in real quick to the um, the state tax issue a little bit? So um, can you just clarify, clarify that one? And so the state and other tax um, was an allowance based on income and your state um, of residence. Uh, and it would calculate an allowance that was then subtracted from income. There are several problems with this allowance. Uh, one, it was based on data from federal income tax returns for people who itemized uh, their state and local taxes. Uh, and those generally were wealthier people and not necessarily low income people. So those percentages didn't have relevance to most of the people filing the FAFSA. And the uh, $10,000 cap on South taxes was added uh, a few years ago. 
And that meant that uh, these percentages were even more off from the actual figures. So as part of FAFSA simplification, they decided to get rid of that allowance uh, because it really had no relationship with reality. But there are a few states that had really high percentages, including New York and California, where eliminating that allowance is going to cause uh, the student aid index to be higher from people in those states. It's eliminating a benefit that they previously received. Got it. Okay. And then let's talk a little bit about um, who, you know, who might get more aid than they would have previously due to these changes. So low-income students will get more financial aid, especially if they live in single-parent households. Uh, for example, with the federal Pell Grant, there will be half a million additional students qualifying for a federal Pell Grant, and somewhere between 500,000 and 600,000. And of the students who qualify for a federal Pell Grant, one and a half million more will qualify for the maximum federal Pell Grant. So this directs more of the financial aid to the low-income students and less to the middle and high-income students. Got it. Okay. Um, and was that um, one of the goals of, of the changes? It was one of the goals to try to target the financial aid at uh, the needier students. Got it. Okay. Um, and a reminder, we already have, we do already have some listener questions, but um, if you have a question, please send it in um and and we will hopefully try to answer it um okay so the the government delayed the release of this new form um and now it is coming you know like we said december 31st um, of this year how how are those delays and the timing of the release of the form going to impact you know students and families decisions when they you know think about financial aid and um and, and how it will play into where they go to college. Now, I mean, the federal government delayed the FAFSA because of the complexity of simplifying the FAFSA. It's not just eliminating questions from the form, they're actually re-engineering the entire substrate that processes and stores the forms. And that was last implemented in 1997, so it's overdue for an overhaul. Um, so the 2024-25 FAFSA will become available by December 31st, of this year. In subsequent years, it will return to an October 1st start date. Uh, now, before 2017-18, um, the FAFSA was based uh, on a January 1st uh, start date. So this is in some ways not that much different than the way it was uh, more than five years ago. Um, but, um, there's a more important problem, which the public is not necessarily aware of, which is the colleges are not going to receive the FAFSA data until the end of January. And they need that data to assemble the financial aid packages. So they're going to have less time to put these financial aid packages together. Now, many colleges use what's called automated packaging, where their formulas are implemented in software. And so all they have to do is assume that they get the data their administrative software systems will put together those financial aid packages, though they usually have a human being review it before they send out the uh, financial aid award letters. Um, so it's, it's probably still going to cause some delays, especially at smaller colleges. 
Uh, so students might not get their financial aid offers until late March or early April. And that includes students who applied early action or early decision. Uh, some colleges may try to address this by uh, providing estimated financial aid packages in, in January for the early decision and early action students. But for the most part, and we're going to have uh, a bit of a delay in receiving those award letters and you'll still have it before you need to choose a college, but it won't be as early as it was in the past. Got it. Yeah. So, I mean, do we have a sense of sort of how much time students may have to evaluate these letters or these offers? I guess they're in email now a lot of times. Um, we don't know for certain because we don't know exactly when uh, the ICERs, um, the Institutional Student Information Records, which is the college version of the um, I mean, FAFSA submission summary, which is the new name for the student aid report. I mean, lots of name changes here. Um, we don't know when they're exactly they're going to get it. Uh, and we might not know until a week or two before, but it is clear that there are going to be some delays. But I'd expect most students to have a couple of weeks, maybe even a month uh, to review the financial aid offers before they have to make a decision. Got it, okay, that's good to know. Um, okay, well, so what are your, let's get into some tips. What are your tips um, for students and families um, sort of going into this process, evaluating their awards, all of that, um, you know, in particular considering the, you know, the change in timeline and the change in the FAFSA more generally? Well, first I would file the FAFSA as soon as it becomes available just to ensure that the college has the data as quickly as possible. Uh, and who knows if there are going to be other glitches. Uh, there hasn't been a whole lot of testing uh, of the new FAFSA because it's not yet finished. They have a prototype that is not a, a full implementation uh, that's been made available to financial aid people like me. Um, but um, there's a possibility there are gonna be some glitches. So you wanna get started sooner rather than later. One thing that you can do now is there's going to be a new version of the FSA ID, which is used to uh, sign the FAFSA. Uh, the new version is not going to be available until the new FAFSA becomes available. But if you already have an FSA ID, um, or if you don't, you could get one now uh, using the existing system. It's mostly going to be usable for the new FAFSA. You may have to make some updates when it becomes available, such as verifying your phone number if you are providing a cell phone number and your email address. And there will be the ability to set up what's called an authenticator app, like uh, Google Authenticator or, uh, or Duo, um, which uh, verify your identity. Uh, that's a new component of the FSA ID, so you'll have to do that step but you'll already have the FSA ID and gone through all the hurdles. And people who don't have a social security number will be able to get an FSA ID for the first time. But for that, you're going to have to wait until the new process becomes available on December 31st. Um, another change that I think, a tip that I would give to people who are applying early decision, which is a binding commitment, is technically as soon as you get admitted, you have to withdraw your applications to other colleges. Um, but usually in, in previous years, you would get your financial aid offer from that college when you got your offer of admission 
and you'd be able to see, okay, this is a reasonable aid offer. Um, I don't need to appeal it. And, uh, and you would maybe hold off on withdrawing the applications until you were certain that you could afford to go to that college that admitted you early. So I would recommend that you don't withdraw your applications to other colleges until you get the financial aid packages for all of them. So you can see which college is more affordable and which isn't. And if your early decision college isn't affordable, then you can potentially back out of that binding commitment. Got it. Okay. Um, all right. So let's turn to some questions from viewers. Um, okay. This is, you know, one that, that came in in advance from Sheena. Um, and this is kind of an evergreen question, but um, Sheena's asking, how do mortgages count um, as part of the FAFSA calculation? Okay, so the FAFSA still will disregard the net worth of the family's principal place of residence. That's the family home. Uh, so mortgages that are secured by that home uh, don't have any impact. Uh, if you have additional real estate, like a vacation home or investment real estate, uh, those are reported as an asset on the FAFSA. And mortgages are subtracted from the value of that real estate, uh, but only if they're secured by that real estate. So if you borrow money from uh, a home equity loan from your family home and use that to buy a vacation home, it's not secured by that vacation home and it doesn't reduce the net worth of that vacation home. Whereas um, if you get a mortgage, use a mortgage on the vacation home to buy the vacation home, uh, then it reduces the net worth of that vacation home. Got it. Okay. Um, someone is at, this is not something that, that I've experienced, um, but a, one reader is talking a little bit about, um, is asking about IT delays and issues with College Board. And then they say they seem like a monopoly in the current market. I'm wondering if you can just maybe, maybe we can just step back with that question and talk a little bit about, you know, kind of the role um, of the college board and all of this. And I, if you've been hearing of IT delays, I haven't heard anything, but if that's something you've been, it, it could be specific to this reader. I mean, right. you, so I haven't heard any delays in the college board this year. I mean, mm -hmm. last year there were delays in releasing the PSAT test results, but so far this year, they seem to be on schedule. Um, the college board has a few different roles with regard to uh, college admission and financial aid. The college board is behind a form, a supplemental form called the CSS profile form, which is used by 187 colleges to award their own financial aid. These colleges still have to use the FAFSA for federal and state aid, but when it comes to awarding their own financial aid, they use the CSS profile. The CSS profile uh, is a much more complicated form than the FAFSA. Uh, it, uh, even before FAFSA simplification, it had double the questions on average. Uh, the questions, in, it had an adaptive form uh, with skip logic and, uh, and each college could customize the form. So there's no fixed number of questions, but the typical number of questions was about double. And they consider many more factors um, relating to ability to pay. And in most cases it yielded a higher uh, EFC, uh, so uh, you would be get less money from the college from its own money. Uh, you would still get whatever federal and state aid uh, 
you are eligible for. Uh, an example is um, all but one of the colleges that use the CSS profile have either a summer work expectation or a minimum student contribution of typically $3,000 to $6,000. So you couldn't have your EFC from that college below that threshold. And that meant you got less money, according to the college's calculus, than you would get um, otherwise based on the federal EFC. Got it. And there's no, there are no changes to the CSS profile this year, right? They haven't announced any changes, though um, the College Board hasn't released their detailed formula for over a decade. Mm. Um, and so we don't know anything that is going on in there. We can see and can complete the form and see what questions they're asking, but we don't know if there have been any changes in the underlying formulas. I see. Um, and the are there, you know, certain types of colleges that are that tend to use that form? They tend to be the wealthier colleges, um, which uh, oftentimes have more generous financial aid packages, uh, but they also uh, tend to uh, be stingier in some ways. Uh, so you do get more total dollars of financial aid. And in some cases, the net price of the college will be lower but uh, it's still, um, I mean, so it, it seems that the, the wealthier the college, the, uh, uh, the more questions they require you to answer on their own financial aid forms. Got it. Okay. Right. And just to clarify, you know, just to, to reiterate what you've, you know, you've already said, but th these schools are using um, the FAFSA, or, or it's not even these schools, but the, these schools are using the FAFSA to determine how much, you know, a student gets in federal uh, grants and loans, how, how much a student gets in state grants and loans, but what this other form is doing is just is helping a college figure out how much of their own money they're going to give a student, right? Right. And what they're trying to do is prevent wealthy individuals from looking like they're poor. Right. Right. Um, Okay, you you kind of got to this already, but what is the status for aid with multiple children in college at the same time? Right, so that's the sibling loophole. It's been eliminated on the FAFSA. A version of it still exists on the CSS profile. It wasn't as generous as the FAFSA, but the last I've heard, the CSS profile still uses uh, something like that. So if you have multiple children in college at the same time, uh, you are going to get more financial aid based on the college board's formula. Uh, now, and a follow-on question is, what will colleges do and if a family had multiple children in college last year and they have them this year, but now the FAFSA has a drastic difference in the student aid index because of the elimination of that loophole. I, I think they're not going to do anything for families um, that where the child is enrolling in college for the first time because they didn't experience it. But if there's a really big change in the uh, student aid index because of this change. Some colleges might try to smooth out the transition in some manner. Uh, certainly if you had uh, same children in college last year and this year and there's been a drastic change in the amount of financial aid, contact the college financial aid office and to ask them uh, why there's a change 
and what they can do about it. And some of them might make some accommodation. In addition, on the FAFSA, there is the ability to appeal uh, based on the number of family members in college, but um, I don't think colleges are just going to restore the way things were because uh, they can't change the underlying formula. But in some cases, maybe if it's an extreme situation or if it's the parents who are going back to college, they might make some kind of an adjustment like uh, subtracting the actual paid tuition bills that the parents paid that they can provide documentation of from the parent income. That's one thing that they might do. Or if you've got quadruplets all in college at the same time, maybe they'll do something. They're not required to do something, but it doesn't hurt to ask so long as you're polite in how you ask. Got it. And just to clarify, is the sibling loophole, it's completely closed or it's less generous? No, it's completely eliminated on the FAFSA. It still exists in a form on the CSS profile for institutional, for the college's own grants, but for federal and state grants uh, and other uh, federal government aid, uh, it's gone. Got it. Okay. Um, so here's a question from um, a listener named David. Can you discuss the look back period for FAFSA effects of 529 contributions and the timing effects? So I think, you know, just to to talk, to sort of generalize this a little bit more, can you, can you kind of talk a little bit about, you know, how um, a 529 plan can affect, um, you know, eligibility for aid? Okay, so there is a change with regard to 529 plans, and I'll explain the way they work before and how they work now. Previously, if a 529 plan was owned by the student, a custodial 529 plan account, or by the student's parent, uh, it was reported as a parent asset on the FAFSA, and distributions were ignored. If it was owned by anyone else, such as a grandparent, aunt, or uncle, it was not reported as an asset on the FAFSA, but distributions counted as untaxed income to the beneficiary, to the child, uh, and that would reduce aid eligibility by as much as half of the distribution amount. So that had a pretty big impact on aid eligibility. The treatment of student and parent-owned 529 plans is not changing, but the treatment of 529 plans uh, owned by anyone else uh, is changing in a beneficial way in that they will no longer be counted as untaxed income to the beneficiary because the untaxed income question, which is the cash support question where this was previously reported, that's been eliminated as part of FAFSA simplification. So that means that a distribution from a grandparent-owned 529 plan has no impact on aid eligibility, and it's not reported as an asset on the FAFSA either. And similarly, a gift from the grandparent to the grandchild doesn't get reported as untaxed income either because there's no question for that exists on the form for that. Got it. Okay. Um, and then, you know, here's a question from um, Hilder that, again, is is, a, is kind of an evergreen question, um, but comes up, you know, a lot. What about adult applicants whose parents will not be financially backing their studies? Is there a particular way to reflect this in a college financial aid application? Um, right. And so can you talk a little, there is a difference, right? Can you talk a little bit about it? Okay, so we're talking about a child who's an adult and right. Right. like an independent student. I think, you know, they're just, they're sort of asking what's the difference in aid treatment for an independent student. Right. So if a student's an independent student, and that could be 
they're going to be age 24 or older as of December 31st of the academic year, or they're married, or they have children or other dependents, they're a veteran, um, they're an orphan, uh, then parental information is not required. It's not um, on the form. It's not asked for by the form. And their uh, financial aid eligibility is based on just their own income and assets. Um, the question I thought was being asked was, what if you your child you have your child applying for financial aid and you have a um, an independent student, a child uh, who's maybe in graduate school and therefore independent, um, how does that affect the student's financial aid eligibility for your undergraduate student? Um, the That student who is um, a graduate student, in some cases may still be counted in family size if the parents provide more than half their financial support and that student lives with the parents. Now, temporary absences for college or military service don't affect whether they're considered living in the household. Um, but if they're living uh, 365 days a year in their own apartment and they don't come home, then they're not counted in family size. Um, the impact of uh, in counting in family size is relatively small. Um, it, it may be a few thousand dollars uh, impact on aid eligibility. And that's because the number in college is no longer um, a factor in financial aid eligibility. That sibling loophole has been eliminated. So previously, it might have been beneficial to count that graduate student in family size because then they would also count in the number in college. But since the number in college has gone away, it's just counting them in family size has a relatively small impact on what's called the uh, income protection allowance that shelters a portion of the parent income. And each additional child uh, may add just uh, a few thousand dollars to the student aid index uh, because of that. Got it. Okay, we're gonna let one final question that kind of a lot of people have, which is if you are a family with um, that's part of an LLC, do you have to report the whole value of the LLC or just your, you know, just your portion on the FAFSA? You report just your portion. So if it's an LLC or a partnership uh, where there are multiple owners, then you report your share of the net worth of that business. And net worth uh, counts uh, in the, not just the, uh, the share of profits or anything like that, but of all assets that are owned and titled to that LLC. Got but uh, you, you might be a minor member of it and you may have a small percentage. Uh, the real challenge may be that uh, maybe there it's hard to calculate what the value is of that LLC. But so long as you can defer to someone else's judgment, maybe you're the accountant uh, for what the net worth of that LLC is as a whole and that you know your percentage, just multiply that net worth by your percentage. Great. All right. Well, thanks so much, Mark, for answering all these questions. Um, that's all the time we have. And thanks for being here. Please join us on Monday uh, with, when Barron's Deputy Editor Alex Yule and Associate Editor for Technology Eric J. Savitz discuss the outlook for tech companies and individual stocks. Thanks for joining. Stay well and have a nice day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.